Michael Waits Media, telling Asia's stories. Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. Today we are joined by Sue Ken Wee. I tried, man. I tried. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. It's <laughs> we, but uh, it's really tough. Uh, <laughs> growing up in school, you know, we learned that all words have consonants and vowels, and I was very confused by my name that had all vowels. <laughs> You've been working on that line for a while. Yeah, I like it. Long time. I like it. That's been stage tested. <laughs> so Sue Ken is a co-founder and managing partner at Iterative. Thank you so much for coming on and doing this today, dude. It's really great to have you here. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Before we get into the main part of this conversation, let's get a little bit of your background for some context, yeah? Yeah. Let's see. Um, I guess what's relevant is kind of, maybe I'll start all the way at the beginning because uh, it ties to Southeast Asia. Um, I'm Malaysian. Uh, so ah, okay. Don't let, don't let the accent throw you off. I was born in Penang. Oh, I love it. Yeah, Penang. The food's fantastic. The people are great. So uh, very proud to be from Penang. I moved to the U.S. when I was about five years old, and um, my parents had me do this thing where I lived in the U.S. for nine months, and every summer break, uh, literally the night school ended, I'd get on a plane, go back to Malaysia, live with my uh, at my grandmother's house with my mom and brother and stuff. Then I would fly back the day before school started. Um, so from about five to eighteen, I did that every year. Where were you in the United States? Kind of all over the place. So I think I went. I went to like. You know, I don't know what the actual number is, but something between something like eight or nine schools before I was 10 years old. Oh my um, gosh. So I spent some time. I lived in Arizona twice, New Mexico, Puerto Rico, Oregon. I mainly went to high school in Oregon. I went to college in Seattle and then most recently lived in San Francisco. So what were your mom and dad doing that you moved around so much? Yeah, my mom was taking care of my brother and I. So she was a stay at home mom. The reason why I'm moving around so much is my dad was Intel's fixer. So quick backstory there. Uh, my dad worked, started at Intel in the late 70s wow. before they made CPUs. They were still making RAM at the time. Japanese basically kicked their butt and they had to make the switch. And he ran the, the Malaysia factory for a while. They moved him to the U.S. That's how I ended up uh, in the U.S. Uh, he got moved uh, by Intel and he was their fixer. So he used to go to the worst performing factory and fix it. So every nine months, new factory, right? Yeah. Did you know what Intel was when you were really young? I mean, obviously when you were 12, 13, 14, I guess you figured it out. But when you were a kid, did you have any idea? No, I mean, it was just like dad's job, right? <laughs> like any other kid, it's just like dad has to like go to work to like make this money thing. And right. like, you know, and like that's all I kind of knew. Um, and look, we grew up with computers in the house because my dad worked for Intel, but like right. I didn't didn't put it together. And maybe more so than that, my dad had the had the good fortune of Andy Grove, who is, yeah. you know, uh, Intel's CEO, is Fortune, Fortune's man of the year. My dad's direct manager for like 10 years, like one-on-ones with Andy Grove every week. And he had meetings with Gordon Moore like every week on production. So he would come home and he'd be like, oh, you know, I, you know, Andy Grove and Gordon Moore and all these guys. And I'm like, cool, dad's work friends. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And then I get to college and I study Moore's law and all this. And I go back to him and I'm like, Wait, is this the same? That's the guy that was at dinner kind of thing? Yeah, he was the guy. And he's like, yeah, I was trying to tell you it was a big deal. And like, so it wasn't until later where I really kind of like, so in my 20s, I asked him for a lot of stories of like, what were the Intel days like? And, you know, he met Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. So anyway, it was a lot of good stories. Yeah, it's probably not a coincidence that you ended up in the business that you did, whether there's any direct correlation to it or not. Do you know what I mean? I a hundred percent put it to that, right? I mean, like it, it was just a byproduct of like what we were doing and what he was talking to us about. 
did you get any sense when you were moving around a lot, particularly as you got older, and I'll give you some context for this as well, that it gave you the ability to adapt to new situations really easily and quickly? I think I, I, I believe that, but after the fact. I think in the moment when you're a kid, you don't real, I didn't realize that my life was any different than anybody else's, right? I mean, it's, it's the only one I know, right? So we're guess. just moving around a lot. I guess. When I was eight years old, just about nine, we moved from Massachusetts to, to New Jersey. And then when I was 10, I moved from New Jersey to Connecticut. And then we switched houses again. And then I went to a different high school. And then we moved to Philadelphia. And I was pretty sure when I got to Philadelphia, when I showed up in class and the kids were in the middle of high school and the kids were talking about what they did last summer and making fun of me for being preppy, right? Because I was from Connecticut, but not preppy at all. I just knew that I was different from those kids. I think by high school, that's when I, high school, maybe when you're a little bit teenager, you start thinking, like figuring some of that stuff out. You're like, oh, you guys all grew up in this one town, right? right. And, or, you know, whatever is the difference is, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the reason why I ask is because for me, I think as an adult, it's given me this ability to adapt to new situations in a way that people that like grew up in just Ben Salem, Pennsylvania, just never learned in the same way, if that's fair. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think if I if there's any one thing that I think is most valuable about whatever quality or skill sets that I have, it's the adaptability, right? Entrepreneurship yeah. kind of is part of this too. And you said you went to school in Seattle or in Washington, right? Yep. I went to University of Washington. Did you go right into a, a corporate job after that or did you just go right up into the startup world? No. Well, I graduated school and I was a consultant for about nine months. And so the story there was... I turned down a job offer from Microsoft and there was a small agency that was like building websites and stuff. There were about 20 people and Microsoft job offer was like three X what this place was. But sure. I don't know. I kind of thought that if I, I would learn more at a small company, not really knowing what an agency was, I worked there for about nine months and the agency went from 20 to 120 in wow. that time. So it was kind of an interesting time to kind of be there. And I was young and, you know, suddenly you're managing people and you're like nine months out of school or whatever. But the really stark thing came, I mean, I was making PowerPoints all day, right? Right. And so it was like, I was spending all my free time like coding stuff on the side. And there was one day I accidentally stayed up all night coding something. It was like 4 a.m. And I was like, oh, crap, I got to like go to work the next day and all that. <laughs> and I just remember being so annoyed. It looked a lot of privilege here, right? Sure, but like sure, sure. so annoyed that I have to like go to like work at this thing that I don't want to do. And... I, I didn't even really know what stars were at the time. And I just was like, how do I get to do this full time? Like, that's the only thing I primarily cared about. Right. right. It wasn't like, oh, I want to change the, if I'm being honest, it wasn't like, I want to change the world. I want to get really rich. It was just like, this thing is fun. How do I spend all my time doing this? Right. Um, so yeah, nine months after school, that's the last kind of like, you know, corporate or even kind of somewhat real job that I had. So really very little big company corporate experience. I think I'm unemployable at this point. Like oh, I just, oh, definitely. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, definitely. You're yeah. unemployable in a large in a large institution for sure because you couldn't last two weeks with yeah. the just the sheer amount of meetings and politics and bureaucracy that take place. So I had to do this for about six months when uh, eBay acquired our first company. I was going to ask. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to talk about decide at all sure. and how that came about? I'm really, but I'm genuinely curious, right? Because I didn't know because this was all happening while I was living outside the country, right? And obviously, I followed the internet boom in the early 2000s. I watched eBay get built. I watched idiots try to short its stock because I was working in the stock market. I had yeah. people's brothers who were like, the, the multiple, it's like 125 times earnings. There's no way this thing's going to 
that kind yeah. of thing. So I watched all that, but yeah. I wasn't watching every little detail. I'm really curious what it was like back then, like why you built this company, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe let me kind of like, I'll place my experience kind of on the timeline. So I graduated oh, for- high school in 2001. Okay. And so I graduated, so I was old enough to kind of mess around with early internet, like news groups, like yep. before yep. there was web pages. And when the whole dot-com boom was happening, when it crashed, I remember thinking, I'm a few years too young. I like missed the boom of my generation. I, that, that's like what I thought when I was like 18, right? Because I was like a nerd. I was super into computers and all this stuff was happening. And I'm right. like, crap, Darn I'm it. in high school, Darn right? Like, yeah. And then I graduated college in 2006. And it was like relatively, you know, it was kind of like a, it kind of come out of that a little bit, right? Google a little bit, yeah. Around. A little bit it was like but not i mean it wasn't like today. But people were still scared and they still talked about like you know the internet blowing up right yeah 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 and like you know i think people were really it's interesting when you're in san francisco you can tell the people that were in san francisco during the first dot-com boom because they like ha- they have like some ptsd scars of just like <laughs> right. how high that was and how low it hit um, yeah, and remember, we didn't know, but in 2007 and 2008, the global financial crisis was coming. And if you remember back in 2006, housing was on fire, the economy was on fire, and it was global. It wasn't just there. It was accelerated there. But yeah, it was like you graduate from college, and it's like, I can do anything except that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and look, I, I know this well, and you know, this is part of the Decide experience, but we started, so graduate 2006, we started Decide 2008. And basically, like those first two years, I didn't make any money. I didn't have insurance. I didn't have anything. And in order to uh, support myself, I was I had some investments that I had kind of like done in stocks, and I had to sell it at those record lows because oh. I like am paying bills, right? Yeah, I but got it. No choice, right? I got so I'm it. like, you know, you're selling bottom. Yeah, you know when you're doing it. I did it. I did it. I had stock you know. in Citigroup and Goldman Sachs. Like I had stock in all of them, and I'm just sitting there going. I'm not doing it. I'm just not doing it. There's no way I'm selling Citigroup at $2 a share. I'm just not doing it kind of thing. Yeah. I feel um, the pain. Ex- except that I did because I'm like trying to make some wrench. I, I, I did right? too. Okay. <laughs> I did too. Oh, man, that sucked. How do you think I know the price? Like you can't make this stuff up. It did suck, right? And anyway, go ahead. No, I mean, look, and, and, and it sucks. So anyway, I think, you know, how we got into Decide was it just seemed startups just seemed fun. I happened to meet Brian Ma, who you've talked to. And I think you were, he was on the show and he was, you know, the story there is he also went to UW and all right. He, I didn't, I didn't actually know him in school, but he actually recruited my brother to Zillow. So Brian was like the first 20 people at Zillow. My brother walked up to him at a job fair and he was like, Hey, you should work. You should work for Zillow. They ended up working together and became friends. So when Brian was leaving Zillow, he was trying to convince my brother to be CTO. And, you know, he was like, okay, I'll, I'll like come pitch you the idea. And my brother was like, okay, can my brother come? I have an older <laughs> brother. He's like interested in startups, right? <laughs> and so Brian comes over to my brother's house. We sit on the couch. He like presents from the like TV and it's a hundred slides, right? I mean, we're like 21. We have no idea what we're doing. And, right. And look, I think I had spent a lot of time before that trying to put together startup teams. And the thing I ran into was, you know, I, I, I try to convince all my friends and they all say yes. And then I'm like, hey, Sunday afternoon, let's meet to actually work on this. Sunday afternoon rolls around. I go to the coffee shop and, yeah. and nobody shows up. I nobody. slowly get the text messages of like, hey, look, I'm not going to make it, whatever, whatever. Yeah. And there was this very quick realization that I just took this more seriously than other people. 
I'm just trying to think of that feeling, right? Because that never changes. Never changes. It just never changes, right? Because even today, people would say, hey, what do you do over the weekend? I'm building something myself, right? Yeah. And it, I feel weird going, what's a weekend? Because, it, and it's not an arrogance. I honestly don't care because what I'm building, I love doing and it's growing really fast. So why would I take the day off? And I don't feel like I'm working anyway, if that, ma if that makes any sense. But again, this idea that like, hey, I'll see you on Sunday at that thing. Sure. But that sure is not serious. Yeah, absolutely. No, look, it, it totally resonates. Like, yeah, my girlfriend was having uh, lunch with a friend who I had not met before. And so I like met them real quickly. And she, and she's like, Oh, you're going to join us for lunch. I said, no, I'm going to run to the office. And she said, Oh, you have to work over the weekend. Yeah. Right. That's, and that's the thing. And look, you and I are used to it, right? We're yeah. kind of like, you, you play the part. You're like, yeah, it's too bad. What? But in reality, it's like, it's not too bad. This is what I'd rather be doing with my time. And the, the other interesting thing for me is that even as I got senior at Morgan Stanley at UBS at Goldman Sachs, you know, we had to do exchange testing. And since I was leading the team, I could have just told one of the guys or gals that worked for me, show up on Saturday and Sunday, make sure the test goes okay, and if there are any problems, call me. But I wanted to make sure that when I showed up on Monday morning, it was going to be right. It wasn't that I didn't trust them. It was that I didn't mind being there. Yeah. And even back then, my buddies would say to me, you have to work on Saturday? Like, really, like, what's the word? Der it, with derision, yeah? And I yeah. was like, yeah. And I was happy to do it. Yeah. And look, we had the same thing. We were founders too. And, you know, people, there's some release going out on Monday and engineers are there over the weekend. And look, we would just come in because part of it is like, look, it's our company. We hired these guys. It's kind of, they're fun. fun guys. They're like fun people. It's, right? fun. Like, it's fun to come into the office on the weekend and just I like hang it. out and like we'd order food yeah. and hang out, you know? And, and look, I, I'm not, I don't want to glamorize kind of like burnout. I don't want to do any of that. But no, like, I get it. Just, it just felt different because yeah. it was like fun. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny too, right? When you're building your own company, you manage your time in ways that you could never do if you worked a typical job, right? So that may mean on a Thursday afternoon, you go take care of errands, you take care of stuff. If there's a lull at work, look, I know from working at big corporations for most of my life that most of the time was downtime, but you had to be yeah. there anyway. You got to show face, right? You got to You just have to be there. It's so dumb and it's so unproductive. Anyway, so what was the idea behind Decide for people that may not remember, yeah? So maybe I'll start with where it, where it started because it's not it's not where we ended at all. And I think this oh, is great. like a good lesson for people because I, you know, I think sometimes people think of like, you know, the Google founders came up with Google and it was like fully formed when they started. Right? No it's way. Never, it's never the case. Never the case, right? So we were in this stage where we we worked on a new idea every week. We released a new product every week because we're just trying to find something that works. We're in like that stage. Brian's girlfriend at the time, who's now his wife, he noticed that she was going to the same Nordstrom's page every day to look at a dress. Nordstrom's is this retailer in the United States. Right. She was just going every day. And look, we were short on ideas that week. We didn't, <laughs> we didn't know what to do. So Brian goes, hey, why are you looking at, why do you go to that page every day? And she's like, oh, I'm waiting for the price to go down. So every morning she checks to see if the price goes down so she can buy us. Right. And Brian goes, oh, we can just build something that will just like check the price and then it'll email you if the price goes down. And she's like, okay, and I, I think not seriously. And so we built that in a week. And as the, I think the interesting thing about it is it's not really a good idea. Like it's just a price alert reminder thing, which a lot of people do. It's not, you know, in hindsight, I'm like, I don't know if that idea is like 
VC back bowl. Like it's none of these things. What year was that though? 2010. Okay. I mean, if you can build that at scale though, it must have meaning, but go ahead. Yes. If you can do it at scale, but here's the thing, we had this rule. And the reason why is because the first 12 months we locked ourselves in my brother's basement and coded lots of stuff and talked to no users. And so we made the cardinal sin. Yeah. So to not make the cardinal sin, every new thing we worked out has to go out the following week. Can't build that kind of thing at scale the following week. Right. So we it. hacked it. So we made a website that you could put in a URL and we made a crappy crawler that basically programmatically would go look at the things, but it's crappy. If you yeah. want to make this at scale for any website, quite hard, right? Actually, this is not, people still can't do this that today, but we only had like one user, which is Brian's girlfriend, now wife. And so what we did was we made a crappy crawler. It would make an alert if it thought that the price had changed. And then we were on a shift schedule. So one of us would go check all of it manually and then manually send the email. <laughs> Just but to the email sure. came from like no reply, whatever. So, so it looked like it was a real system, but like it was just us in the back waking up and setting alarm clocks to like check prices, right? right? And sending emails. I love it. Um, and that kind of made all the difference because what we ended up finding out was we thought there was a bug in the system. So she would put in like a dress, some other friend would put in a TV and the system would be like, okay, this TV went from a thousand bucks when this person put it in to 950. And then we would go check a couple hours later and it was like 980. So we thought there was a bug. We're like, right. So again, 2010, right? Yeah, but this is awesome information though. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. And so we thought there was a bug. We're like, hey, I checked it. It says 980, but the system said it was 950. What's going on? Couldn't find any bugs. So eventually we just started saving web pages. We're like, okay, I want to see what the right. program saw at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we started saving the pages. Program was right. It was 950, but now it's 980. And we're like, what's oh, going on here? What's going on? Yeah. And it turns out prices change, right? Yeah. Like depending on, the, and this is, look, this is like probably common knowledge now, but back in those times, you know, e-commerce was relatively new and it wasn't clear that prices change so often. Dynamic pricing. Dynamic pricing. And so we were just nerds. And so we were like, huh, that's kind of interesting. So we just started putting in a bunch of URLs ourselves to find out like, hey, like, does Amazon chain prices a lot? Does Costco, does like Walmart and all these guys? And like, does jewelry hit the, is it only TVs? And we're like, so we're just putting lots of stuff. And we start coming up with some interesting trends. Amazon changes their prices all the time. All the time. All the time. Costco, at least back then, never. Right? Walmart, never. And we're like, oh, that's interesting. I bet Amazon is way more sophisticated. Like Amazon is probably like, they have some software that's changing the prices based on demand. And Costco probably still has like a guy in a back room updating a like spreadsheet every month. Right. right. And because of that, it's a pain in the butt for him to do it. So the prices never change, even if they, they should change. change. And frankly, probably even if he's been told to change it, he's just like, man, looks like I'm not doing that. There's just no way. Well, and who knows what the infrastructure is right, like? Right, like right. How many hurdles does he have to do to change one price on the website? Right. So right. Anyway, then that was really interesting. And by the way, we found out that things with high margins, prices changed way more often and things with low margins didn't because there was no room to change it, right? Right, right, right. So jewelry, when it moved, like 40% discounts, right? Um, but like food, like nothing, basically none. There's no margins to take. So we started <laughs> learning all this interesting stuff. Then- Did you feel like you were onto something? Honestly, at that time, at that moment, not really, because we were just like, this is interesting, right? <laughs> we felt like we were onto something at this next point. At one point we were talking about this and it was just kind of fun for us. And somebody was like, you know, what's weird. 
you can get the same product for a cheaper price if you just know when to buy it. That was like a weird thought back in the, back in the day, right? I'm like, wait, I can buy this TV and I can get a hundred bucks off. While you're doing this, you said part of the um, process and the methodology you had was that you reduced a new, th you produced, sorry, you released a new thing every week. Yep. Were you still doing that at this time? So the meeting that we used to have was every Monday we would meet and we would decide new thing for next week. And then we would, that would have to go out the following week. Or do we spend another week work working on the same thing? Okay. So what happened with this one? You just kept going. Yeah. Because it was kind of interesting. We didn't have any other ideas. <laughs> but being honest, right? No, I, know, I love it. We didn't have any ideas. I love it. And so we just kind of kept rolling with it. And somebody said that and we were like, oh, yeah, that is weird, right? Everybody's kind of like obsessed with coupons. But if you actually know when to buy stuff, you can get a discount too. Okay, can we can we like figure that out? Can we automate that or figure that out or yeah. Figure that out. It's got to be some trends, right? And look, I went to school. All of my co-founders went to school for computer science. I studied math and statistics. We're right. like, we kind of have some tools to do this. Yeah, we've got to be able to figure this out. We got to figure something out. And then by a stroke of luck, which is even you know more luck than us being kind of technical uh, guys, our professor in school at UW, the computer science professor, his name is Oren Etzioni, he had invented the, that technology for airline travel. So he was the first guy to do airline price predictions. So if you're buying a flight from like Seattle to Phoenix, and you see the arrow on kayak. He did that in 2008. It's called Faircast, and he sold it to Microsoft for like 200 million or something, and it became Bing Travel. But he was a professor at UW, so we had taken classes for him. And Brian's younger brother happened to still be in school, and so naively walked up to him and was like, "Hey, I'm doing a startup. Uh, <laughs> can you teach us how to do this thing for consumer product?" And just so naive, right? Of course. Like. Who's this guy? Why, why would he care about talking to us? But sometimes being naive and young is helpful because you just don't care. Yeah. You don't know any better. Yeah. Right? No downside either. No downside. And so it was really funny because we kind of looked up to him because, you know, he, oh, he had started this company. It was sold for like 200 million. And so Brian's brother goes up to him and was like, hey, can you teach us how to do this thing? And he's like, okay, talk to me about it. So Brian's talking to him. Brian's brother's talking to him about it. And he's like, okay, cool. Can you get your team to come meet me next week? And he's like, okay, sure. So he goes back to us and he's like, hey, we have a meeting with uh, Oren Etzioni next week. And we just we just laugh him out of the room. We're like, ah, right. like, no way. We've just spent 18 months building stuff that goes nowhere. Right. Like, this guy's not meeting us. Next week comes the night before. He's like, hey, should we prepare for this Oren Etzioni meeting? And we're like, what are you talking about? He's like, we have a meeting. And I was like, we're like, wait, you weren't kidding? And he's like, no, we have a meeting. It's at three o'clock tomorrow. <laughs> we're like, oh, crap. Like, Put on your shoes already. Yeah, so we're like frantically kind of like trying to put this idea together of like, hey, maybe we can predict this thing. And, you know, we go and meet him and he's like, hey, this is really interesting. Yeah. Uh, I know how to do this. Like you just happen to come to the right guy. Yeah. And so then for the next three months there, we like kind of became his grad students where he's like, okay, cool. Here's the things to look for. I don't know. I'm not convinced we, it can work, but like do this and then come back and then he's do this. And, you know, you know, five years, you know, then there was five years of company building. We ended up raising 16 and a half million. There's like 60 people at the company and then, you know, eBay buys the company. So, um, but that's how it started. But I love this story because it's so, it's so far away from the normal founding story and the normal company building story that you hear, right? Yeah. It's this idea that like two guys sitting in the basement, have an idea, build that idea, yell at everybody who's wrong, 
go get funded, buy a Ferrari. Do you know what I mean? Like all this stuff, none of this thing happens linearly. None of it. And, and look, the story of the two guys in a basement buy a Ferrari thing, like, I mean, I know like a, as you do too, a lot of like pretty successful founders. I've never, I've like almost never heard the story played never. out that way. Never. Never. Yeah, sorry. Never. Never. Because it doesn't happen that way. And it's, it's good for me to kind of take, take a step away from the mythology and hear like a real story because I think it's really informative for other people. Yeah. Yeah. And look, I tell like people who want to get into startups and founders, you need to kind of get in the game. Like what, if you want to get started, just work on any idea that you think is like somewhat reasonable and just get started. And by get started, it doesn't mean make a pitch deck, right? But like no. start trying to get customers. Just do something. Started. Just do something. Do something. It's, it's so funny you say that because this is the advice that I give to everybody as well. And I know it sounds trite, but you, ha you do have to be in it to win it. But actually, you have to be in it to understand it as well. Because yeah. you can sit on the sideline and go, oh, I would be the best at this for sure. Well, okay, but maybe, maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't. But you know who's actually going to be better at it? The gal that's actually doing it already. Yeah. So yeah. one of the things that I say a lot when I podcast is everybody's an overnight success 10 years later. Because yeah. you only hear about them the month or the week or the year before they get famous. Because it's yeah. already obvious that they've built something incredible. But you don't hear about the nine years before where, like you said, they had a new idea every week that simply didn't work. Didn't work. And, and look, those first 18 months, I think we made two dozen ideas that didn't go anywhere. Right. And we had a meeting. We actually got to the point where we were all running out of money. And we had a meeting where all, we all got together and we're like, hey, do you guys have any money left? And we started talking like, okay, should we all go get jobs and like replenish the bank account? And like, maybe we'll come back and do this in like three years. We had that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. But to be fair, you know what? At the time you were probably less employable than you thought you were. Yes. Yes. In a way you had, it's, and it's not a skill set problem. You know that nope. that's not an insult. Nope. It's not no, even no. a compliment. It's just a fact, right? Because your work day, I'm guessing was sitting around with other people just going, what do you think we should do? How should we do this? That's not working. Come on, dude. You said you were going to be here 15 minutes ago kind of thing. But there was no like institutional structure around it, right? And it's like, guys, I'm going to work from home today. No problem. Just make sure you get this thing done. It was so different. And if one day you had to put on a suit and go to an office, you'd just be like, where is the sword? How, yeah. hard, how hard can I fall on it kind of thing? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, I mean, it was even less than that. You know, we started out all going to my brother's basement and working out of every day. And we were so unproductive because we're a bunch of like 22 year old guys. We just ended up like playing cards and video games all day. <laughs> we switched from going in every day to only meeting on Mondays so that like, cause we just got more stuff done at home by ourselves without the distraction of each other. Do you remember the feeling you guys had when you, when you felt like, I think we're onto something, do you know what I mean? Cause you've been struggling and trying to figure stuff out even after you had that meeting with Ornazioni, right? He's like, yeah. I don't know, but yeah. try this yeah. stuff. You know, I think there's like moments where, and, and look, I think you're almost kind of scared to let yourself lean into the like, I think I'm onto something, right? Cause you get your expectations up and look, we had been crushed so many times thinking we were starting the next Facebook and then like nobody cares, right? <laughs> um, and all you're starting was the next face plant. Yeah. I mean, like, dude, I remember there was this one product specifically. We didn't get a single sign up, like couldn't get my friends, couldn't get my parents, like not Nobody. one. Do you know what it's like to code an entire product and not get a single sign up? Yeah. Brutal. 
right? And especially, look, I think coming out of college where school kind of builds you up. You're like, okay, you do well in school. You get graduated. Everybody pats you on the back. I was a consultant for nine months. Everybody thought I was kind of like hot stuff, whatever. And then you've never poured yourself into something more and had less results in your life, right? And so big ego kind of like put you in your place, right? The world doesn't care about you. Um, But I do think it's really important for people to go through that, particularly people that are trying to build something because... One of the other things that I think I've learned over time is that everything in life is a conversion problem. And I mean everything. And you don't know when you're going to get the conversion. So even if you believe that everything's 25 to 3% conversion rates, even if you do 100 things, you still may not get 25 positive results. Yeah. You may have to do 1,000 things to get 25. And you don't know when they're going to come and where they're going to come from. So this is where it gets really interesting for me. I, I like this idea that you said you had this meeting where you all got together and said, uh, do we have money for food tomorrow kind of thing? Because if we don't, what's the, what's the solution to this? I don't want to give up, but I don't know what else to do. Yeah. And, and look, I think about the world in the same way you do. The way I say it, it you know, that's my stats background. I just think of the world very probabilistically now. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. There are chances that things may work out for right. you. And your job is to maximize those chances as much as you can. Correct. But if we're being honest, like you can, you only have so much control over your probability function, right? Like, I don't know, like, so you, you just, that's what you do. That's what you focus on. Right. And so even the idea of like, Hey, let's go back and get a job somewhere. And then we can come back and do this again. was just like trying to get more trials. That's yeah. what it was yeah. and getting better at building stuff is just trying to increase our like probability. Right. I completely agree with you. I want to know if that experience that you had, and you've founded some other things, but since we're on that topic, I just want to stay with that. Colors the way you look at it from now where you're an investor. I mean, it totally does, right? And I think there's like a version of this where, especially as an investor, you're kind of, you you end up pattern matching and you you like take your own story into it and that kind of stuff. Right. I think it informs a lot of who we end up investing in at iterative now. And what's I think interesting, and maybe I think of us as a little bit different from what a lot of investors look for in Southeast Asia. And this maybe is controversial and I hope I get in not, I don't get in too much trouble and all this kind of stuff. Right. A lot of the investors here have different backgrounds than Brian and I, right? So a lot of the investors here, more finance, more consulting, they were bankers, that kind of stuff. Right. So they bring that knowledge and into kind of like how they invest. Brian and I are like a bunch of hackers who like didn't get MBAs and never worked at like corporations and stuff. So I find that we end up looking for the like technical misfits, right? Maybe they're not that polished. Their pitch kind of sucks, right? but like they're kind of weird and they're just like, you know, earnest, right? And so I don't know, we have a different profile. What's your view on a three minute pitch or speed dating for investors and stuff like that i mean if i'm being honest that's a lot of what happens with kind of the applications we get i mean we get like we get like hundreds and thousands of like you know month right and it's like i can't we we like can't dig through all of them and so the what ends up happening is we're default no's so we have to find something in there that makes us be like hey this is like worth digging in or thinking more about or something like that right because you're sifting what's the bias you think you have Because if you're flipping through stuff, and I'm just saying flipping through as a as a you know as a metaphor yep. for how you look through things, but if you're yep. flipping through it, what do you feel like you have to see to make a decision? Like I think we should talk to these gals and guys. 
there's a couple like pivot points where it's like, okay, if one of these things is true, then maybe we'll like dig into it more. One, do they have some weird view of the world? Yeah. That is not common, right? Or we just, I don't know, haven't seen before, hadn't thought about. And look, some people have weird views and it's just like crazy, right? <laughs> right. Like, just weird. Yeah. Just weird. They're just weird, right? And sometimes they're just like weird, but there's like a hint of truth or like there's some thread that you kind of want to pull on, right? Okay, so there's that. The other thing too is maybe sometimes it's not even the idea they're working on. It's what they've done with it, right? Yeah. So I love any kind of application that is like, Hey, so we're starting this thing. I didn't really have any money to do anything with it. So, you know, I just kind of told people we were this, but we're not actually. And then I like talked my way into this conference. I made myself seem like I was a publication, but I'm not a publication. Right. Like anybody who's kind of like bending the rules, I'm like, all right. You're like, in. You're in. <laughs> I'll right? like, talk to you. We, we can figure that out. Right. And look, YC has a famous question on their application, which is, when was a time that you've hacked a system to your benefit? Don't put anything that broke the law. Right. <laughs> yeah, because because it's likely that you did. Right. And so, look, my example of this, we went we went through YC. My example of this was uh, I was into this like collectible toys when I was in college, and they come in these mystery boxes. So you buy this box, and there's like on the box there's a ratio of like one out of five is you get the like crappy character, but like one out of a thousand you get this like amazing character right and i was like oh this sucks like i gotta spend a bunch of money on this so what i ended up doing was i bought a high precision gram scale and i went to the store and, and i sat them. on the floor and i just weighed every single box they had to try to find the unique ones yeah. and then just bought the unique ones right and then i made a spreadsheet and i shared it on the internet for everybody else to also find all the unique ones and it's like the crowd is roaring. I mean, I mean, look, it's a little thing, but like what I think is, okay, this is like self-patting on the back, but to your question about what we look for, it's technically not illegal. The only thing you have to be okay with is looking silly. Yeah, so this, this is a point I make all the time. How afraid are you of looking strange or getting rejected? Because if either one of those things are in your DNA, put down the entrepreneurial pants and uh, go get a job. Put it down. Yeah, because you're just never going to get through it. Just never. never. And I think that's where a lot of the stress comes. People, even if they build something great, they're just so afraid to ask for feedback on it. And then why are you building? And this is my, this happens less in the Valley, but happens more here. Everybody who says they're in stealth or like, oh, I don't want to talk to you about it. We're like, just kills me, right? What are you building? Your idea is so unique. There are 7 billion people on the planet. It's so unique. No one's ever had this idea before. And you're stopping people from giving you feedback. How are you ever going to know if anybody wants this? You are exactly right. It's the exact same reasons. You know what my hunch is most of the time, the people that do stealth mode? Yeah, they're not working on anything. They're not working on anything or it's an ego thing. Oh, for sure. Oh, 100% sure it's an ego thing. Feedback. My thing is so transformational. It's so earth bending that if I tell you, you won't even get it. So why am I sharing it with you? You have no idea how smart I am. There are two things that are cardinal sins in the valley that doesn't seem to have passed over here. Stealth mode, like in the valley, like if people are like, oh, I'm in stealth mode, I'd be like, cool, I'm leaving. Yeah, like, exactly. The end of it. Like, what, what are we doing? Right. <laughs> Number two, getting investors or people to sign NDAs before you tell them about your idea. Oh, please. 
it's I we tell our startups now every we get a new batch every six months, right? And sometimes there'll be somebody and they'll be like, oh, this investor wants to know whatever, should I have them sign an NDA? And I'm like, yeah, if you want an immediate signal that you're like new to this and they'll to have them not talk to you anymore, like right. knock yourself out. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, and you know, when I first started doing this stuff 15, 20 years ago, people would say, Should I give you an NDA? And I was like, no, I don't really need it. First of all, it's not really enforceable anywhere. Nope. If you want it, I'm happy to sign it. But really? Yeah. Like, do you have like, have you discovered the human genome and no one's aware of it yet? Like, I don't understand. And, and, and just in case for, you know, people don't understand this uh, from an investor perspective, asking an investor to sign a perspective, to sign an NDA. Okay. First of all, they're not really enforceable anyway, but you're basically saying like, okay, if, if, I can't invest in anything else that is even somewhat similar to this before you tell me about it. Right. Like I'm not signing that. No way. So no, no way. When he signs NDAs. Yeah. Are there other big differences from what you've seen between Silicon Valley and Southeast Asia? And I'm curious, like kind of at scale, what those things are. Yeah. I, sometimes I get the feeling that the investment scene here, and you, you won't say this explicitly because you exist in that thing, but I can kind of say whatever I want is that it's still so immature Right, and that the types of people that are making investments, for the most part, there's some great investors out here. Yep, that's for sure. Yep. But the rest of them are just pretending. Let me, let me, can I tell you a quick story? Yes, please. But don't lose your train of thought. No, yeah, yeah. I ran into an investor once of a small fund a few years ago. And I said to him, dude, you're not really investing. You're all, in a way, you're almost like pumping and dumping. At the early stages, you're literally like, you put a tiny amount of money and take too much of the equity and then you go and sell to somebody else and say you have like an IRR of 400%. And then you go out and raise a bigger fund based on that. The whole thing is disingenuous. And he, he looked me right in the eye and he said, you don't understand the game. And I looked at him and I said, you have no idea how to invest. Anyway, go ahead. I mean, the way that I'll say it is there is more variability in the <laughs> investor quality of Southeast Asia than in other places. Um, <laughs> And okay. it comes in a couple of ways, right? Go like, for example, just to, to tap onto what you're saying, more investors here will take money off the table at like series A or B to kind of lock in gains. I hate the this. Valley, the Valley, it'll never happen. The Valley is like, if I, get, if I get the winning ticket, I'm riding that thing as far as I can ride it. This is why Sequoia just did their change. Now they have like just like an evergreen fund where they will like keep the money in even after IPO. They're just, you ride it as long as you can. You get every last bit of upside. And so I think, and look, this, you know, we can go into a long thing about this, but this also comes from some of the like where the money comes from in the LPs and stuff. So, you know, the LPs in Southeast Asia, not as used to investing in venture and right. they really care about getting their money out and they don't want to get it stuck for as long. And so, you know, yeah. when we were raising our fund, when we talked to people here, that came up more, right? Oh, lock your money up for five to seven years, whatever. The U.S. guys are like, didn't ask. They're like, yeah, you're pre-seed. Like, let it ride. You know what I mean? So when I first joined the bond trading desk at Morgan Stanley in 1997, Tommy Judebach, who was the head of the U.S. government desk at the time, had a list of trading rules. Okay? The first rule was position is more important than price. If you believe something's going up, buy it. If you believe it's going down, sell it. It doesn't matter what the price is at scale. Yeah. Let your winners run, cut your losers fast. 
And also, before you enter a trade, know what your exit points are on the upside and on the downside. And I think that investors out here don't get that. They're like, I made some money, I'm getting out. And they don't understand that if in a, particularly in venture, if the trajectory is up, it's probably going to keep going up. Yep. Until at least the IPO. So if you have that, don't take your money off the table. And, and I look, I think I 100% agree with you, right? And, and look, maybe venture, I mean, venture definitely should have maybe learned more from bankers and stuff because I feel like the stuff Tiger, Tiger Global is doing now is exactly what your guy said, right? It's yeah. like, I don't care what the price is. I just, I just need to get in it. I want to be in. The companies are, right? I just need to get in. To throw, to, to maybe help Southeast Asia investors a little bit, some of it comes from the LPs and where they're coming from. They're not used to seeing kind of like tech IPOs. It's earlier, all this kind of stuff, right? Yeah. And so hopefully it'll kind of be there. But, you know, I often I often think about how the ecosystem in Silicon Valley has gotten to the place that it is now and where uh, Southeast Asia is. And I don't think they're going to be identical. No. But sometimes the thing I think about is, did Silicon Valley develop into the like end state that it is now? because it was the best way to kind of do this. And it was like survival of the fittest. And this was like where we all ended up. Or is it because of some fluke? And I tend to think it was more survival of the fittest. And if that's the case, then it's like then it's more likely that Southeast Asia will kind of like end up in shades of that right now. There's going to be some nuance and that kind of stuff. But I fully expect, I mean, look, our fund is going to hold more than other funds yes. because that's what that's what we think. How do you think technology has or should change venture investing, right? Just, and let's just get back to this thought that you said earlier. You get thousands of people that apply to the program. Yep. You can only take a finite number of them. Even if you did the whole thing virtually, you can't take a million people every cohort. It's not possible. We do do everything virtually. You're right. So, right. But I'm just saying, even if you do, but you even, cannot. Even then we can't, yeah. Right. You cannot take so many people because you can't pay enough attention to them. And if you live by your philosophy, that money is the least important thing that you give the people that come through the program, which I agree with, then the thing that you do give them is your time, your effort, your knowledge, yep. your perspective, your experience, and there's no price for that. But there's also not a lot of time for that either, right? So yeah. how do you use technology to make VC even better? Do you know what I mean? In the same way that we use technology to do equity analysis, to do algorithmic trading, and all these other things that we applied tech to to make our business way more productive, efficient, and yep. profitable. Where do you think that happens in, in the VC business? Do you want the crazy idea that we're thinking about? Yeah, I do, because I've got some really crazy ideas myself about this. So I'm okay. curious what yours are. Now, I look, I don't know if we're going to do this. It's early stages. So let me just put that out there, right? Yeah, yeah, this yeah. is not like a concrete thing, but we're thinking about it. Crypto, which is the conversation that everybody's kind of having, right? Yep. Now, I think most of it is kind of noise and speculation and all that kind of good stuff. But the thing that seems pretty clear to me is it is an interesting way to set incentives and then kind of like have everybody be selfish, but push in the same direction. I mean, think about Bitcoin. It was like a white paper that got the incentives right. And then everybody kind of like did stuff, right? So one thing that we think about with our time is, is there a way? And look, it doesn't have to be crypto. You can do it in any number of ways. But can we build a system that gets the incentives in the right way where like 
you know much more about finance than I do. Like, is there a world where we can get you to kind of like help out with like some company without us asking you or kind of doing something because the incentives make sense and the onboarding works and all of that stuff, right? And look, we have to have some gate and we need to have some governing body. We need to do all this kind of stuff, right? But I think what's interesting is I don't want it to just be, we want to run a different venture firm than just like, we have a bunch of general partners and then we hire some venture partners and we hire some venture associates. Some scouts and we raise yeah, we more do that money from family offices and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Not as interesting. Not right. Really. And the thing that we think about a lot about too, is we primarily have a community of founders that we get to know really well because we work with them. Right. How do we tap them to like, and look, they're not going to do it full time, but like we have some founder in Vietnam who, by the way, probably has better deal flow than like we're ever going to have in Vietnam because he's there and is incentivized to kind of like do some of this right so we're thinking a lot about incentive structures and how to kind of like get people to kind of do what we like need them to do so what you do is you tokenize the tasks right and you also yep. tokenize the success and you also make those tokens tradable so that for people that yep. really want to do it they can buy into it yep because if they buy into it what they're doing is they're buying into their own expertise's ability to access something whatever that something is we don't yep. know what it is yet and then provide it to you and to the other founders in which you're investing in a way that they believe is going to be so beneficial that the value of the token that they're holding has to go up in price because otherwise they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't waste their time. So it's not, they're not speculating on the value of some BS token or yep. altcoin. Yep. They're betting on themselves to add value. And look, we're, we're thinking about going even further. Again, we're like talking about this, right? So we're, nothing set in stone. Do we pay out some of our carry that comes from Brian and I to as distributed to tokens? Every token, every year, we distribute some percentage of the carry of the fund. But again, you can make the whole fund. You exactly. can go even higher, right? You can go even higher. Brian and I just own stuff. Yeah, and you can just tokenize the whole experience. The whole thing. Right. And people are starting to talk about doing this. There are plenty of ways that you can use, and I don't like to talk about it like it's crypto because people think about Bitcoin and Ethereum and yeah. Dogecoin, right? And that's not yep. the conversation that I nope. really want to have, and it doesn't interest me that much. But you can create, because it's just software, right? A tokenization model yep. that has built-in incentives that can be used for nothing else because it's software mm -hmm. than you want it to be used for. Mm -hmm. And... The, actually, the reason why I asked this whole question about where does technology come into play mm -hmm. is this reason. This is something that we've thought about for a very long time. Because if you look, and you can look at it around the sort of fringes of the ecosystem, if you look at things like Yield Guild games, right? So pay yep. to play. Yep. If you look at the tokenization and the fractionalization of assets being done by elevated returns, if you look at all these little pieces, and if you look at, what's the right word I'm thinking of? Um, the collateralization of assets. Yep. yep. Then you can build that into the VC experience yeah. and change the entire thing. Yeah. And, and look, a couple other things that kind of come out. Of, I mean, everything you're saying, that's like, I think that's really interesting. We're starting to see some people in the Valley think about it and we're starting to think about it. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting about it is it democratizes VC returns a bit. Correct. How many people get to be LPs and VC funds? And by the way, uh, you probably know this better than me. Venture capital asset allocation as a class, at least in the United States, looking looking like a pretty good asset class over the last 10 years, right? But you know, because of some rules, 
people can't invest in early stage startups, right? Because, you know, you have to be accredited and all yeah, this yeah. kind of stuff. So look, is there a way that we can kind of like make that more even so people have more opportunity? Yeah, I mean, financial inclusion is actually really important. And the tokenization aspect of it makes financial inclusion actually easier than it would be otherwise. And also better for founders, especially if you're a first time founder, you don't have the cash. You're not you're you're not going to be like you're not going to be a accredited investor. Right? Right, right. And so like but you're the one with the stuff we we personally want. Right. Like you have the expertise, you have the network, all that kind of stuff. I love this idea how founders wouldn't be eligible to invest in their own companies. Yeah, <laughs> okay, I had I haven't put it that way. But yes, you're absolutely right. right. <laughs> You can start a company, which is much bigger risk, but like, sure, you can't invest in it. But you can't invest in it. Anyway, look, I think there's a lot more ground to cover, and hopefully you'll come back on the show if there's anything else you want to cover. Otherwise, I'm just going to let you go because the conversation's been awesome. Hopefully it was helpful. Uh, Yeah, I feel like like you and I could talk about a whole wide-ranging topics. That's why we have to have you back. Yep. I'm going for it again. Suken Hui. Hui. Yeah, (laughs) it goes the other way. Don't even start me. I'm sorry. I tried. Co-founder, managing partner at Iterative. This was really awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for having me.